I could see that there was a connection and that there were some game theoretic claims being made by the medical match and they'd be worth investigating. week's episode of the Mixtape Podcast, I had the pleasure of meeting one of my heroes in uh, intellectual heroes, Alvin Roth, a 2012 Nobel Prize winner in economics. Um, he's been a big inspiration to me ever since I read his book on two-sided matching with Sotomayor back in graduate school. I uh, really ended up changing how I thought about the world. He is one of the most interesting people, uh, but also the most pleasant people that you'll meet in the in economics, and it was uh, my pleasure to get to talk to him. Hope you enjoy it. Well, uh, it's my pleasure to have uh, uh, Professor Al Roth here on the the, the, the podcast. Uh, Al, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to, to talk to me for this uh, this time. I'm always glad to talk to you. <laughs> Before we get started, um, I just wanted to get a little bit of background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in New York City. Oh, yeah? Where in New York City did you grow up? In, in Queens. That's why I speak the Queens English. Oh. <laughs> what were you like as a, as a kid? Um, well, I was pretty good until I got to high school, and then I was a little unhappy. But, oh, yeah? But mostly, I, I was fine. I had a, an unremarkable, peaceful childhood. Yeah? You, you, didn't, you didn't enjoy your high school years? I, didn't, I wasn't crazy about mine either. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't wild about high school, but uh, but before and after was just fine. So yeah, yeah, high school is too much. Yeah, high school is a weird invention, important and not all great for all of us. Uh, uh, well, so when when you were in your 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 in terms of college, um, I'm curious. Before we kind of get started, was there was there ever any like some of your earliest earliest experiences where you read? of scientist, or you read a thinker or you heard of someone and you just thought, you know, this, this person's really, this person, this person's had a profound effect on me or really changed my life. Was there ever some people like that for you that you really looked up to? Well, I think probably those people come a little later in my career than college, but a, a formative experience in college is I, I had a civil service job in the summer uh, for an army laboratory. And I was in the operations research group of, of an army laboratory. And I thought, what a cool idea to use, you know, modern mathematics of various sorts to try to solve practical problems. And so I came back and decided to be a, an operations research major at Columbia. Had, had you ever, had you ever heard of that field before? I never had. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's um, uh, tell me a little bit about what was operations research like? Uh, that would have been, I guess, the late 60s, right? That's right. Um, so so operations research was I conceived it as being all the parts of applied mathematics that had been invented in World War Two or later. Um, I later came to understand that the field understood it to be all the parts of applied mathematics that had been invented during World War II. Mm. Uh, and, and so, so for a long time, it, the field didn't uh, modernize itself quite as much as it now and now is. And, and in particular, that was important for, for game theory when I began to study it. It looked to me like game theory was going to be uh, centrally located in operations research. But it turned out that if you were a game theorist, you were an economist, however, however you, you know, whatever you'd studied. Mm. Um, but um, but basically, there, there were lots of optimization techniques, you know, things like uh, 
uh, linear programming and, and integer programming and uh, scheduling and queuing. Those were, were all things that had become very important in the logistical and some of the military efforts in World War II. Mm -hmm. And the name applied mathematics had sort of accrued to an earlier kind of applied mathematics. So, so a lot of differential equations and things like that. So, so operations research was was and was going to be a, a collection of modern tools. And, yeah. and uh, I hadn't quite understood the, the slow schedule on which the modern tools would be updated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems like operations research is a real close cousin to economics because it sounds like you're trying to, uh, you know, you're you're studying the, the practical allocation of scarce resources, but it never really got absorbed into economics, did it? Well, so so it's it's becoming, you know, in my market design classes these days, I have lots of students from from operations research, which makes a lot of sense because they have a, a great interest in, in tolerance for details, which which are important when you're doing market design. Um, but I think that when I was studying OR and, and a lot of classical OR was about uh, single objective functions. Uh, you know, we, we were studying the operations of companies and companies had something they wanted to do, whether it was efficient transportation or, uh, you know, efficient inventory management or something like that. And so the question was, if you had a goal and you had some constraints, how would you, um, how would you satisfy them? But, if, but one thing that's brought OR back into economics is that the operations of lots of modern companies involve running markets. Right? Yeah. So, so many of the biggest companies in the world run marketplaces. Right, 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 right. And so they've found a home in those at those firms you're watching or sort of producing workers that are going in uh and doing that work on the platforms of firms and things like that well i think that 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 opened the door for for economists for market designers to work in these firms and and also for operations researchers and computer scientists you know so right. so some of the the history of, of operations research as an academic discipline is it it um it left some topics on the table for, for other disciplines. So game theory moved into economics, algorithms, you know, have largely moved into computer science. Uh, so, but, but now all of those things are merging again. And there was a time when I was young, if you met an economist who worked in the private sector, then he was likely a macroeconomist who worked at a bank and his job was forecasting interest rates. Right. But now, you know, the chief economist at Microsoft is Michael Schwartz. The chief yeah. economist at Google is Hal Varian. Right. Uh, there are market designers all over. And, right. uh, uh, right. and of course that makes sense because, because we're, we're seeing a lot of the operations of firms being markets and involving game theory rather than than single objective function optimization. Yeah. So at Stanford, when you were doing your PhD in operations research, was it was it like at Stanford at that time, a big community that would have included the mathematicians and the economists and the game theorists? Or were you all kind of siloed by yourself? Well, <clears throat> it was a big community, but but not quite the way you describe it. There were three departments that did operations research in the 1970s when I was a graduate student. One was called operations research. That's where I got my PhD. Another was called engineering economic systems. And a third was called industrial engineering. Mm -hmm. Today, those have all been merged into one department called uh, management science and engineering. Oh. And, um, and of course, they have, a, you know, 
and I have a I have a courtesy appointment in that department, uh, as well as my my main appointment uh, yeah. in economics. And again, you know, I some of my closest collaborators are there. Itai Ashlagi has his appointment in MSME. Mm. Uh, so so I think they've come together again. Uh, but but it took a long time. When I uh, shortly after I got my PhD in 1974, there was a new journal of operations research formed called Mathematics of Operations Research (MOR). And it had three areas, and one of them was game theory. And the game theory editor was Bob Oman, the best game theorist in the world. And, <laughs> uh, and so it really looked like, like uh, game theory was going to thrive in OR. Yeah. But, but in fact, I think the departments and you know they didn't they didn't hire game theorists. They hired you know when when integer programmers retired, they hired more integer programmers. And integer programming has made enormous strides in yeah. intervening decades. Um, but so has game theory. So have the study of algorithms, and those have studied in those, those have developed in outside of of academic operations research. But but now it's coming back. But I think there are fewer departments of operations research than there were when I got my PhD. Yeah. Well, when did you first pick up your first game theory book? Well, it was when I was a graduate student. I had a game theory course from Michael Mashler, who was visiting from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, which was the center of game theory at that time. Yeah. Game theory was very, very small. And, uh, you know, Bob Oman had gone back and to, to, had gone to Israel and, and started a, an important group that, that, you know, persists to this day. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's hard to stay the center of something after the North Americans pick it up. But... Um, but for a long time, the Hebrew University was uh, was the big engine of game theory. You picked it up, so you so you took that class with him, and was it just immediately love at first sight? You wanted to. This is what you wanted to work on. I think it was. You know, it was partly love at first sight and partly a process of elimination. Game theory just seemed in in so many ways more exciting than reliability theory and inventory theory. Right, right, right. Um, and uh, my advisor was Bob Wilson who was yeah. the only game theorist working at Stanford at that time. Yeah. That's yeah. been a, a long, wonderful relationship. He's still here. He's, he's uh, you know, he's, he's a hiker. He's in his mid eighties. Yeah. Uh, and of course he just shared a Nobel prize with, yeah. uh, with Paul Milgram. So, um, so that's been a nice history too. I, I bet that has just been so pleasant for the three of y'all to, to share in that. Um, I yeah, was. There are four of us now in Bob Wilson's dynasty, right? So three of his students, uh, Ben Holmstrom and Paul Milgram, and I. Have... Oh, that's right. I that I did know that. I did know that. Um, so I, I was curious. Do you remember the first time that you read *College Admissions and the Stability of Marriage* by David Gale and Lloyd Shapley? I don't remember the first time I read it, but I remember the first time I, I read it with interest, which which yeah. made which may have been the first time. And that was, I'd already arrived at the University of Illinois and had somehow heard of the, of the what was then called the National Intern Matching Program, the, the oh. way the doctors got, uh, got matched. Yeah. And I had read maybe somewhere in my history, uh, Gail and Chapley, and I, I could see that there was a connection and that there were some game theoretic claims being made by the medical match and they'd be worth investigating. What were they saying? What, what was the well, They were saying that it was a, that not in those words, but they were saying it was a good idea to, to report your true preferences. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's that's of course possibly a claim that it's a dominant strategy to report. Right, 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 right. Um, you know, in your book with Sotomayor, it's uh, it seems like you. It's a book that's almost like a a love letter to that Gale and Shapley paper. It seems like it's just been such a 
uh, you, you see that, am I right that you see that paper as just an extremely important article? Absolutely. So I think there are two papers that have played an enormous role in my career and in thinking about market design for matching markets. Uh, and one is Galen Chapley's paper on uh, college admissions and the stability of marriage, they called it. Yeah. And the other was the paper by Shapley and Scarf on cores and indivisibilities that, mm. that came out in, in the very first issue of the journal Mathematical Economics. Yeah. Uh, and so sometimes I, depending on what audience I'm speaking to, sometimes I make the point that, that you know, very interesting practical things can be pointed out in quite abstract uh, circumstances, because of course, what they were doing in that in that second paper was thinking about how a housing market would work if you couldn't right. pay money for houses. Right. And, uh, and of course, whenever I would teach that paper, my students would point out to me that actually we we do pay money for houses. And, uh, and that's how I started to talk about kidneys, actually. Right. Right, uh, right. You know, I said, okay, yeah, yeah, I know we pay money for houses, but suppose yeah. we pay the kidneys. Yeah. Uh, was was Dr. Shapley's and was was this work as widely appreciated broadly as as sort of you saw its importance? Was it sort of hidden in math? So I think it was a, a little of both. It wasn't widely cited, but people who read it thought of it as a gem. You know, uh, oh. uh, and, and one reason is there's a very nice paragraph in the paper that points out that that they haven't used any equations. They've yeah. they've just argued in prose, and and right near the end of the paper they point out that nevertheless no one has trouble recognizing this as mathematics. And yeah. so they sort of said, if your friends and neighbors think that that uh, mathematics is all about numbers, you can point them to this article and, yeah. and otherwise. Yeah. So so it was it was gem-like, but not. Um, I, I think not appreciated as a, a serious work of of matching that that it is, and yeah. matching markets were not widely appreciated. You know, mostly yeah. as economists, we mostly thought of the exemplary market being a commodity market, right. where where prices determined who gets what. Right. Uh, and of course, they were talking about markets where prices didn't do all that work, and and indeed, there are of course many many markets where um, where prices don't do all the work. They yeah. they looked at an example where prices couldn't do any of the work, but but I would say most markets have a a matching aspect to them where you care who you're dealing with. It's not it's not a commodity market where you just care about the price. Yeah, it, it's. Um, do, do you think that uh, uh, that that, that people saw how general it was, you know, now, now it just seems like it's almost in my mind, and I've been very influenced by your book with Dr. Sotomayor, Sotomayor, but it just seems like the college admissions and stability of marriage is really just a, a, uh, a, a, a description of the modern economy. You know, it, it, it's just so much more general than, than, than it isn't. You know, I, I don't think that was widely appreciated at all. And and if you look at the history of its citations, I think that I my, my book with Marilda helped bring it. It did. It put it pushed it up because I was looking at. I have here. It had. I can only go back to eighty nine, and it had twenty three sites a year. And now it it gets over six hundred. It's just it's just seems like it's really well well uh, well loved. So so. Well, I'm curious. What were they like? What were the? What were those? How? What was your interactions like with them? Well, so so I didn't have close personal interaction with either of them. I would see them at conferences sometime. Um, 
I, I saw Shapley much more often than Gale at conferences because Shapley thought of himself as a game theorist and worked on game theory throughout his life. Whereas Gale, I think, thought of himself as a mathematician and presumably went to, to different conferences. I see. Um, but, I, but I would see him occasionally. But, but I didn't have a close personal relationship with either of them and never wrote papers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but it's, it's interesting. Uh, it, it seems like you've been, you've been one of their biggest advocates is that I don't know. I don't know why I got that feeling. I, I read your book with Dr. Sotomayor three times and each time I just kept thinking, boy, they really love David Gale and Lloyd Shapley. I mean, it is just, and yet it was so interesting to read the book because it would be like the uh, site after site, it would be references to, to work that you had done, but it was work about this deferred acceptance algorithm. And it was just, I, I just felt like, you know, it was, were, were you able, were, were you able to kind of push people to realize kind of early on, this really is an important topic? I mean, you said, you mentioned the book had a big impact on sites. Yeah. So, so you say early on, I think it, it was a little bit slow. You know, I, I was, uh, when I started doing this work, I was at the University of Illinois, and then, then I was at the University of Pittsburgh. And, you know, the nice thing about both of those places was I had, uh, I didn't feel pressure to, to do things fast. And, and right. partly it's because there weren't a lot of other people working on matching. At any given time, there was a, a rotating cast of maybe just two or three other people yeah. uh, who were writing about it. Once, once the book came out, that, that picked up a bit. Yeah. Uh, but those, again, for, for me, those were very important papers. You know, one of the things about the paper by Gallen Shapley is they didn't publish it in a research journal. They published oh, really? it in the American Mathematical Monthly, which was sort of a, a journal about, you know, it was published by the American Mathematical Association, but but it, it wasn't thought of as a research journal. It was, the, it was oh. a little bit the kind of thing you could publish things that you might teach in your class or just interesting, short, non-technical papers. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, that they may have overlooked how important it was because uh, their profession didn't didn't treat it as important. In other words, they were writing for mathematicians, not for economists. Right. And the mathematics is is quite beautifully simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so you're writing about labor markets and you're writing about marriage markets, but you're doing it in a very original way, right? Like you're right at this time, like in the in the early to mid '80s, when you're starting to write about labor and marriage and matching markets, you you are not approaching it the way that Gary Becker was approaching it in the 70s. So I was just kind of curious, you know, what kinds of back and forth were you having with those economists that were working on these things? Yeah. So my first paper uh, that appeared in Mathematics of Operations Research, I first sent to the Journal of Political Economy. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, George Stigler was the editor, and he wrote me a very polite letter in which he said he'd looked at my paper and he could see it was very interesting and, and involved a lot of ingenuity, but that except for the title, it didn't have anything to do with economics. And, <laughs> what, he meant, and what he meant was there were no prices. Being no adjusted. prices. Yeah, exactly. Right, 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 right. What Becker think about that? So I don't know. I didn't, I mean, I, I got to know Gary later in, in my career. Uh, so I never corresponded with him about it. You know, Stigler was, was the editor who wrote Yeah, me. that's right. I mean, is it, it, it? I guess like that would be something interesting for the for the listener to hear that distinction. Uh, a core part of your work 
of your like market design work, it has to do with some, you just mentioned it, something about the existence or non-existence of prices. And I'm just curious, can you just sort of elaborate a little bit about what, why is that a key feature of the work that you've been doing? Well, so I think that um, a lot of the ways that we used to talk about labor markets and still do to some extent is as if they're commodity markets. So you and I are professors. There's a price for professor labor. It may be a doubly personalized price. That is, it depends where you're working and who you are, right. uh, but but it's a price. And then you once you discover those doubly personalized prices, you can compute competitive equilibrium. Right. But of course, the, the, the power of competitive equilibrium is you can start to say what's gonna happen in a market with a very low dimensional vector of prices, you know, one for each commodity, right? right? Uh, you know, number number two hard red winter wheat isn't doubly personalized. It's, it's just got a price on the Chicago Board of Trade. Whereas professors, you know, we all have different prices. So it turns out that to say that there's a competitive equilibrium doesn't help you very much. You have to do just as much computation as to find the matching because you have to find who's going to work with whom. Whereas to find the price of wheat, you just need to, to clear supply and demand because it doesn't matter which wheat goes to which yeah. uh, purchaser. So uh, so that wasn't, I thought, a very useful way of, of looking at the market. And indeed, labor markets like ours don't clear by tatonement. You know, it's not that there's just prices. We, I mean, you, we've just been through a labor market for economists, as we are each year, and they have a lot of interviews and a lot of people presenting their job market papers and a lot of offers that, that take some time to process. Uh, so there are a lot of market institutions in labor markets that really can't be explained if you thought that labor was a, a commodity with a price, mm. with, with simply a price. Mm. So... Um, so I think more and more we've come to see that uh, that it's important to think about all the market institutions and that prices uh, don't always do everything for the market. And again, it's convenient when you're making that point and when you're studying such markets to look at markets where prices play very little role. But but in many many markets where prices play a big role, it doesn't play the only role. So in our labor market, you know you and I would teach many fewer economics courses if we weren't paid. So prices are a big part. We're paid. It's not, it's not like the, the right. marriage model of Gale and Shapley. But, but on the other hand, when one of your students gets a job, the first question you ask them is not, what's the salary? The first question you ask is, who offered you a job? What's the match? Right. And, and that's really important. So, so it was time for economists to turn their attention to matching markets and not yeah. treat everything as a commodity market. Right, right, right. Uh, so, so then this this paper, uh, your your paper, repugnance as a constraint on markets this is a nice segue into it. I think I think a lot of people think repugnance here would just be synonymous with like the, what I've heard neuroscientists call the cognition of disgust, just some sort of built in emotional, you know, response, but that's not really the core feature of repugnance, the economics, your idea of repugnance, is it? Well, so a little bit, I'm curious a little bit about what, what it is about it and where this came from. Well, so let me talk for a minute about disgust, which is not what I study, but which I think that a lot of, you know, evolutionary psychologists think of as, as a universal human adaptation to avoid infection, for instance. So we don't like contact with bodily fluids, you know, with feces, with, uh, you know, with spit, things like that. Because, and it's, it's wise for you to 
shrink from contact with other people's bodily fluids because you can get sick. Right. Um, when I talk about repugnant transactions, I mean transactions that some people want to engage in, but that other people think they shouldn't be allowed to, normally for reasons phrased in moral terms. Right. And the and one reason repugnance of that sort is different than disgust is the the views are widely varied. First, not everyone shies away from repugnant markets. The what makes them repugnant is that some people want to engage in them right. and other people don't want. And the way I got into it was was through thinking about kidney transplants, yeah. because there, there's there are laws almost everywhere in the world that say you can't buy a kidney for transplant. Mm -hmm. And therefore, not surprisingly to economists, there's a real shortage of organs for transplant. And it's kidney disease is one of the top 10 causes of death almost everywhere in the world. Uh, and, and transplantation is the treatment of choice. So, right. so if you're a Gary Becker, you know, he used to say, there's no shortage of kidneys. There's just failure to use the price mechanism. Right. Um, and the reason he says there's no shortage of kidneys, incidentally, is that kidneys are sort of special as organs because healthy people have two of them and can remain healthy for one with, with just one. So, so healthy people can donate one of their kidneys to someone who, uh, will otherwise die of kidney failure. At and, some cost. Yeah. And another special thing about kidneys is we can keep people alive for a while mm -hmm. with kidney failure because there's dialysis. Right. Um, but it doesn't keep people alive for all that long. And it's it's not a nice life. And it's much more expensive than transplantation. So there are lots of avenues by which we could uh, increase health of, of kidney patients if there were more organs. Uh, but you can't pay people to, to donate organs. So, so that's how I got into thinking about repugnant transactions. And once you start to look for them, there are a lot of them. Some of them involve prices and, and what makes things repugnant is charging money for something. And some don't. So I think a prototypical repugnant transaction that we've seen a lot of change in in the last 20 years is uh, same-sex marriage. Yeah. Uh, you know, a marriage is a transaction. Uh, Same-sex marriage is a transaction that some people want to engage in, but that other people think they shouldn't be allowed to. And, and these other people aren't, aren't feeling a direct negative externality from the market. They're not planning to engage in same-sex marriages themselves. They just think it shouldn't be allowed. And of course, we had a, uh, a big national fight that, that still goes on, even though since 2015, uh, same-sex marriage is recognized in every state because of a, a Supreme Court decision. Um, and that has nothing to do with money. It wasn't that people are paying other people to marry them. It was some people thought you shouldn't be allowed to, yeah. to marry someone of the same sex. Yeah. But but we see similar things about um, surrogacy, which just recently is, is commercial surrogacy is legal in almost every state of the United States. Mm. Surrogacy is a market where you can pay someone to bear a child for you. And in California, where I live and where, you know, surrogacy has been legal for a long time, um, you can have you know, your name and your partner's name on the birth certificate as the parents mm -hmm. of a child born to a California surrogate. Yeah. Um, but there are lots of places where surrogacy is illegal in most of Western Europe. They don't even recognize parentage. And there are places where surrogacy is like kidney donation. So in, in England and Canada, surrogacy is legal, but you can't pay the surrogate. So right, there aren't right. that many surrogates right, in those places. Right, right. Right. Um, so, so it's not like disgust where everyone hates surrogacy. Right. Not everyone hates surrogacy. There are families that can only get started with the help of a surrogate. Yeah. Uh, but not everyone thinks that 
that it's a good idea. And in New York, where they just legalized commercial surrogacy in 2020, the debate was very interesting because the debate for and against, quite passionate, uh, had people on both sides who identified themselves as progressives. So there were people who identified themselves as feminists who said you shouldn't legalize this because because uh, it commodifies women's bodies. Yeah. And there were people who identified themselves as feminists who said, this is women's work. Why should it be for free? Right. Uh, you should be able to, to pay for women's work. Yeah. We, we yeah. too often don't pay women, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. things like that. So, so I think as economists, we need to understand these when markets get social support and when they don't. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's too important to be left to the moral philosophers. Right, right. Yeah, the, the, the commodification argument, that, that has been a very powerful argument that I think a lot of people do find real intuitive, even if they don't quite understand the, the depth of what the argument is implied. And, and they're, you know, you could maybe even take that argument and apply it in things that you think it would, that you would, that, you know, you could apply the commodification of things for to all kinds, even to work in general. You know, but I, I wonder when you've had debates with moral philosophers about this, is there what do you what do you sort of say, like kind of in the, the good faith version of what you've heard them say? What what do you think really is the powerful, compelling argument about it's just these are repugnant and, and it should you know, these prices should not be used. Is there any arguments that you've heard that you feel like have been really personally compelling for you? Oh, so I find many of the arguments not completely compelling, but but there are some worries. And one of the worries, of course, is that if we allowed kidneys to be paid for, then it might be that only rich people could have kidney transplants yeah. and only poor people would sell kidneys. Right. And that's a, that would be a bad outcome. So I, I agree with that. But I'm a market designer. So, of course, exactly. I think we could design the market so that it wouldn't happen that way. Right. And in particular, for instance, you could amend the law, which says no one can give valuable consideration for a kidney you can't sell a kidney in the united states you could amend the law to say only the federal government can pay someone for a yeah. kidney and yeah. then yeah. we would allocate kidneys as national resources the same way we do now with deceased donor kidneys so you could definitely design a way to get more kidneys that wouldn't result in only rich people being able to afford them you, you could give them out by need as we do now with the with the you know, with the very insufficient supply of, right. of donated deceased donor kidneys. Um, but that's a, a concern that people have is that is that if we started to pay for kidneys, the price would be driven down pretty low and only, but but not so low that poor people could buy them and and but maybe so low that that poor people would sell them, but it wouldn't improve their lives very much. Right. Uh, so, again, that's another market design issue. You know, it it uh, it saves a great deal of money to give someone a kidney transplant in the United States because we give dialysis to everyone who needs it and that's very expensive. Mm. So, so we could easily afford to pay $100,000 to, yeah. to people who donated a kidney, uh, things like that. So, so we wouldn't have to let the price be, be brought down. What, you know, when, when I wrote about this once, I said, you know, supposing we decided to legalize a market for kidneys, how would we know you know, 25 years later, if we'd done a good job. Right. And one of the things I said was 25 years after a successful kidney market, when you went to an airport bookstore, you would see um, books with titles like uh, 
exercise and diet to be a successful kidney donor. You too can qualify. Right. And there'd be a line for for donating and selling kidneys uh, yeah. rather than for receiving them. And yeah. and only, you know, only well-informed people who'd gone through a rigorous uh, filtering process and educational process to make sure that they were very well-informed yeah. uh, would be allowed to, to give kidneys. You know, you see, you used to see at least exercise books like that sort of, you know, saying this is the Air Force uh, yeah. exercise regimen. And, um, and, and, and of course, we honor, uh, we, we had a, a debate like this when I was young during the Vietnam War, at the end of the Vietnam War, when we went from a conscription army to a volunteer army, that is from, from basically an unpaid army to a, to a paid army. Yeah. Uh, and, and the question was, would we um, come to regard our soldiers as mercenaries and, and not respect them? Well, you know, speaking of airport bookstores, you know, when, when I line up to get on an airplane, we board behind the serving soldiers, right? The first people they, among the first people they ask to board are, are active duty members of the armed services. And uh, that's because we, we honor their service. We, we don't think that they're, they're mercenaries. And I, would, I wouldn't mind boarding behind the kidney donors too. Yeah. Um, so, so I think if we did it right, we could increase the supply of kidneys yeah. and also make it an honorable, admirable right. thing to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was curious about that. I was curious if, if in your, in, in some of this market design, if there's, if the issue has something to do with like a fundamental sense of fairness, are there, you know, are there life, ha are there hacks that could be done in such a way that, you know, the complaint is muted, you know, like the pay, like you mentioned, maybe the payment doesn't come from the buyer. Maybe the payment comes from a central agency. I, was, I mean, is it is there something in market design that that does appear to actually have that potential, like you know, from surveys or experiments that you've done? Well, certainly in surveys and experiments, we've we've done both of those. You know, people have done both of those. There are, uh, well, I don't know when we got frozen. We were talking about experiments and surveys of hacking yeah. a way around these. So, so there have been experiments and surveys uh, about fairness. Yeah. Uh, and there's been some theory as well. You know, so market design institutions like rationing or price supports are designed to support one side or the other of, of markets yeah. uh, and make sure that prices don't don't do all the work. Right, uh, right. Oh, so, so that's so that's what so is that one of the mechanisms? It, it, since the price is the mechanism, it's somehow a way to try to what are you trying to dislodge with the price? Well, so so we wouldn't want very poor people to compete with each other to sell kidneys with such fierce competition that you got very little money for a kidney. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think what we'd rather do is say, you know, the U.S. government will uh, pay $100,000 to everyone uh -huh. who donates a kidney, but you have to go through a, a, a program of qualifying uh, yeah, yeah. to make sure you're healthy, to make sure you are well-informed, to make sure that you give informed consent. Yeah, uh, yeah all of those things. And then, oh. and then you, you know, then you get a hundred thousand dollars plus, uh, you know, annual, uh, medical exams and, and insurance that, yeah. that lasts for the rest of your life. Right. You could easily afford all of that. Oh, so sort of stopping the exchange. From Not the like, stopping the, the exchange, but, but stopping the competition, right? So, stopping the competition. so you know, Gary oh. Becker's point again was there's no shortage of kidneys. You have two and you only need one. Right. So, so, so if you think about it the way Gary did, then there's a big surplus of kidneys. You, there's a danger that that we could drive the price down very low. 
That would yeah. that might be a bad to the thing. marginal to the marginal yeah. kidney or whatever. Yeah. yeah, who could be a very poor person, very desperate yeah. person. Oh well, so so uh, um, you know, it's I was actually kind of thinking to myself this. Uh, it, it's interesting that we we give kidneys away to our loved ones, and I and in a way, it's like it seems like part of the problem is how. You know, you can also wonder a little bit this. I, I don't want to overstate this, but I am just I have thought about this before. We, we give all of our resources to our loved ones. But really, the the you know, the the earth is filled with people who are desperate for resources. And I just wondered a little bit in some ways, it's like, you know, love as the driver is itself kind of a constraint on these markets where there are no prices too. it's not just repugnance. Well, that's right. So, so it's just I, this targeted giving that's a, that sort of ends up being the the thing, and and lots of people don't have you know with these kinds of you know matching problems with the the blood the blood type and everything that it, there can be all kinds of issues with that too. Absolutely. So, so just to talk about kidney disease again because that's something I I concentrate on. Uh, it's disproportionately a disease of the poor. So relieving the shortage of kidneys would primarily help poor people, not, mm. not harm poor people. So I think there's right. a lot of confusion about that. Mm. Uh, but again, you'd have to be careful not to harm poor people as you executed the market. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not that there aren't lots of potentials to harm people by, by allowing things to be sold that aren't allowed. Yeah. So think of now you, I had, I had asked you earlier who had been your heroes sort of growing up and you said it all happened kind of later. Now, I, now I want to know who have been these real lofty, inspiring people for you in your career. Well, so again, the two most important papers in my career are, are these two papers that Shapley is a co-author of, uh, you know, Gale and Shapley and, and Shapley and Scarf, but I didn't know any of those people very well so so yeah. they didn't they didn't feel uh like heroes although they're they're certainly you know my intellectual heroes but bob wilson was my advisor and yeah. i would have i would have had a very short academic career without his support because i flunked my qualifying exams yeah uh, and so you know finding an advisor was not a a small thing and uh and he was interested in game theory and and you know i became a game theorist so um so he's been uh you know uh uh, long-term source of support and uh, and one of the delights of, of returning to Stanford 10 years ago is he's still kicking. Yeah. And, well, uh, what about, know, what is it about Bob Wilson that makes him so, uh, ha have made him such a special person to you? What, what was it? What did he, what was he like? Well, so he was an His early, he, he was an early user of game theory and he saw how economics was going to evolve, I think, more clearly than anyone else, right? So, mm -hmm. so you have to remember that, that when he was young, when he and I were young, if you met an economist who said he was a theorist, what he meant was he studied general equilibrium theory. Right. And today, by and large, you know, economic theory is, is substantially game theory. Right. And Bob understood that that was going to really change the kind of things we could study and how we would study them and the level of detail at which we could study them and how we could do more than just prove existence theorems. Right. Uh, and and he, I think he saw it all coming, you know, maybe not not able to write all the papers in advance, but but he understood that game theory was going to really change the way we think about the world. 
Hmm. And, um, and not many people did, you know, there, when von Neumann and Morgenstern wrote their famous book on game theory in the 1940s, a lot of people looked at the book and said, wow, that's great. You know, that's going to change everything. But then years went by when it didn't change it, everything, because you had to build up a lot of game theory before you could do more than say, everything is, can be formulated as a game. You had to know right. what to do then. Right. Uh, but by the time Bob got his PhD, I guess in the, in the 1960s, um, we were starting to have the tools to, to talk about games in intelligent ways. Yeah. And among the things he understood was that it was going to let us study information. And so yeah. one, of, one of the things that he won the Nobel Prize for was his understanding of how uh, auctions can end with a winner's curse because mm -hmm. they might fail to aggregate the information that everyone has so that the winning bidder not benefiting from the aggregated information would would find that he'd overpaid right. right the winning bidder would be the person who most overvalued a common value object so the right. the kind of auction that bob was thinking about was auctioning for the right to drill oil in a in a particular geographic uh, formation right and before you you participate in such an auction your your drilling teams go out and they drill a test well and if your test well comes up looking like there's a lot of oil and my test well comes up looking like there's hardly any oil, then you are in danger of overbidding. You know, your, your guys say, based on our, our well, it looks like there's a whole lot of oil. And my geologists say just the opposite. But if you knew that my geologists hadn't found much oil, then that would really lower your estimate of how much oil is there. But yeah. if you don't, you might bid too much. So that was how, how Bob started to understand information in the very yeah. early days. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. Because I, I, I think about people like Adam Smith and, 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 and F.A. Hayek, and, and it's like, you know, the markets perform so well. And there's so many little pieces in what you said about just these little, the, not little, but these these places where it just, it does there it's not exactly gonna and you know so much of your work with these these missing prices um it, it's interesting though because in some ways it's like you've got these poorly performing markets and then the game theorists come along and almost kind of fulfill the original vision of this invisible hand of of actually performing well again well so so game theory is about if you like the visible hand, you know, the question yeah. is, how do you make rules so that markets work well? Right. And one of the things you can talk about, say, with oil field auctions, and this is the kind of thing that Paul Milgram and, and Bob Weber talked about in some of their early work, is if the government wants to give people the safety of, of bidding what they think things are worth, maybe they should reveal more information. Maybe the government should reveal its own geologic surveys so that if you find a lot of oil and you you can look at their survey and see whether you're crazy or not. Maybe there is a lot of oil, yeah. right? You don't have to be paralyzed by the winner's curse. So yeah. um, so it's not magic. It's not, I mean, the, the magic of the marketplace depends on rules that make yeah. the market work well. Yeah. And, yeah. and markets are human artifacts. I mean, right. they have always been designed, sometimes collectively, sometimes by a process of evolution, right. but, but markets are tools and the idea of market design is, is we should be able to make the tools work better when they're not working well. Right, right, right. Um, uh, so Marilda Sotomayor, I, I'm curious, I, I was looking at your feed, I was trying to, to get a sense of how many papers 
you guys wrote together, but that was a, that was a, I get the sense that was a really nice working relationship. Is that right? It was, it was. Yeah. So, so in fact, she had been a postdoc uh, with David Gale oh. and he called me up and he said, you know, I know this smart researcher who, uh, who would like to work with you and do you have a, a postdoc? And I did, I did have postdoc. So she, she came and did a, a postdoc with me too. And then came back over periods of time as a visiting professor at Pittsburgh. And we, we uh, did more work together eventually writing the yeah. book. Um, and, and, you know, it, it was an evolving relationship when, when he first recommended her to me, he said, well, her English isn't perfect, but you can speak to her in French, uh, <laughs> which, which worked better for him than for me. Well, <laughs> was it your idea to, to write the book or was it just something that came up? Y'all, y'all kind of came together and was like, it's time, it's time to write this book. No, I, I think it, um, it was my idea. And, and because in fact, I, I, I won't name her, but there's another matching theorist who reminded me some years later that, that I had actually approached her about writing, joining, joining with me to write the book first. Okay. And, uh, and she hadn't. And, and she said, you know, her life would have been different. You know, <laughs> uh, but Marilda, um, you know, is a much better mathematician than I am. So writing proofs concisely and, and figuring out what we knew and what we didn't know, um, you know, the, it, I, I couldn't have written the book that we actually wrote. Oh, is that wrote. right? I mean, I I read it three times. The first time I re- first two times I read the book because I wrote my dissertation on um, uh, gender ratio imbalances and bargaining between uh, married married people or or people in the marriage market, and I and somehow I found the book and I read it twice. The first time, the way that you would like read a John Grisham novel, you know, just kind of reading it. I didn't learn anything, and so the third time I read it with pencil in hand uh, and went through every single proof. And I did not turn the page until I could could restate every theorem and, and work through every proof. And what blew, what really amazed me is, is I was able to do it, which I've concluded is because it is so well-written. It is just such an, a well-written book that a, a, a curious person Without a lot, without a background, uh, as being a strong game theorist, can learn so much from it if they just have a pencil and are willing to work through it. Well, I'll tell you a story about the proofs in that case. I don't know that I've told this before, but um, but Marilda, you know, the year we did most of the work on the book, Marilda had an office right across the the, the sort of a, a common area for me, so so we would pop in and out of each other's office all the time. And sometimes, um, you know, she, most of the proofs are crafted by her. Ah. And so on one occasion, I remember she came in and she said, you know, I have a proof to show you. And so she started showing me. In those days, we wrote things on the board in chalk. And she started showing me and she got, you know, somewhere uh, through the proof, reading from her notes. And I said to her, wait, wait, you know, how, how come that last step follows from the step before? And she looked a little bit and she said, uh, let me get back to you. And she went across to her office and 20 minutes later, she came and, and she filled in the details. And I said to her, um, we have to include those kind of details in the book. And she said, no, no, you know, mathematicians like to be challenged. They don't like to see all the details. And I said to her, economists don't like <laughs> Yeah, we, we like to see the details. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, in her own proof, which she just done, she, it took 20 minutes to, to fill in some of the steps. Oh. But by the time I could understand them, um, they, they were clearer. Oh, that's, that's neat. Oh, it's just such a great book. When um, 
Uh, I tell, I give it away to people, you know, I mean, I don't think they're, I don't know if they're going to sit down and read it, but it's like, when I read that book, I can't, that third time I read it, I just came away and I just thought, well, wow. I think of the whole world differently. Now I think of economics completely differently. Now I think in terms of this deferred acceptance algorithm all, all the time, you know, these, these ranking of these preferences and this, this going first. And it's just, it's just a, it was really, that was probably the most important intellectual experience that I'd ever had, to be honest, because, because I just, I hadn't had that before, you know, it was just real, it's just a wonderful classic book. I don't know. Uh, I feel like it, I guess it, it, it won an award I know in for being a fantastic book in game theory, but it's, it's, it really, I feel like it should be on every social scientist shelf. It's just great. Well, you know, writers sometimes talk about writing for the perfect reader, and it sounds like you were, you were. That's the right. I was the, the I was the perfect reader. That's right. Um, well, it has been, uh, it is always so nice to talk to you, Al. I, I uh, just tell people all the time that you're, you're one of these few people who is nicer uh, then they are smart and they're obviously smart because they won the Nobel prize in economics, but you are one of the most, uh, supportive people, uh, in the profession role, uh, you know, how you treat junior people and how you promote your students and just everyone else and act like you're not a big deal. It comes across in that book, you know, uh, that you really think the world of Galen Shapley and, uh, you know, you, you yourself are just, uh, we're, we're very for, I really mean it. I really feel like we're very fortunate to have you, uh, in our community. I am anyway. So thank you so much for talking to me. Well, thank you for, for talking to me. Okay. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye.